0: 100 years ago this Sunday, British rule in Ireland formally came to an end and the first Irish government took up the reins of power. Our decade of centenaries editor Shane McElhattan joins us now in the latest of our series of broadcasts marking the anniversaries of these key events. Good morning, Shane. Describe where you are this morning.
1: Thanks, Mary. Yes, indeed. We're here overlooking the upper courtyard of Dublin Castle, where this coming Sunday, President Michael D. Higgins will lead a commemoration of the events here 100 years ago. To look back on these events and what part they played in the beginning of Irish independence, I'm joined here at the castle by our own David McCullough, author of, among other works, A Two-Volume Life of de Valera, and Laura Cahalan, historian and senior law lecturer at the University of Limerick, and on the line by John Gibney, co-author of *The Handover: A New History of the End of British Rule in Ireland*. David, given that the British were going but not gone, and the Irish government was only a government in waiting, can you give us some idea of what the power structure was on this this day? 100 years ago? Well, it's all a bit complicated, I'm afraid,
2: Shane, so you'll have to bear with me. Uh, People sometimes imagine that the Irish Free State sprang into existence as soon as the treaty was signed or as soon as it was ratified. That, of course, isn't the case. The Free State doesn't come into formal existence until the 6th of December 1922, a year to the day since the treaty was signed. So in the interim, as you say, the British administration in Ireland, it hasn't gone away, you know. It still exists. It's still running things. The uh, Lord Lieutenant is still up in the park. All the officials are still here in Dublin Castle running the machinery of government. Then you have the Doll government. This is the uh, government that was formed by Sinn Féin after the great election victory in 1918. Uh, they had underground departments that were trying to ha- run an alternative administration to what was coming for- here from the castle. So you have the Doll government headed since the 10th of January by Arthur Griffith. But the British didn't recognize the Doll government, so in, under the terms of the treaty, they had agreed to hand over power to what was called a provisional government, a government that would um, you know, rule in the interim and, and gradually t- take in all the powers that the administration had. And that had been formed on the 14th of January, it was headed by Michael Collins, some of its members were also members of the Dahl government holding the same portfolio, some of them weren't. So it was all a bit confused. to to say the least. So you have three governments, three sources of authority in the 26 counties, plus, of course, you had uh, Sir James Craig's government in Northern Ireland. So that's four governments on quite a small island. It's a recipe for confusion, added to which you have elements of the IRA which aren't one bit happy about the treaty and are seeking to uh, assert some independence. So you have a very complicated situation. It was, to say the least of it, an interesting juncture in Irish history.
1: Laura, was there a purpose for this duplication?
0: Yes, yeah, so this was actually a really clever tactic by the Irish. So the British were never going to consider using the Doll government as the vehicle for the, the legal handover. So Article 17 of the treaty referred to this body as the provisional government. Now, the Irish had no choice but to go along with this idea of creating this new provisional government. But if they had to do it, they were going to create ambiguity around it. So for the most part, there was an overlapping of the roles between the Doll government and the provisional government. And there were uh, some differences, for example, Richard Mulcahy, he was not in uh, the provisional government. He was only in the Doll government. And it led to lots of interesting questions in the Doll. actually, when it came to ratify these provisional government ministers in the Doll, You had de Valera and others asking who are they responsible to? Are they responsible to the doll? Or how does this all work? And in a typical sort of politician's way, um, you know Arthur Griffith and, and others really avoided answering those questions. And it helped to maintain the narrative that the Irish were trying to create, that this wasn't actually setting up an entirely new state. This was still a creation of what had begun in 1916 and what had been declared in 1919, and that you had the same people involved, and assen- essentially you had this overlapping. But Obviously, from the British point of view, they saw it quite differently, that they were setting up an entirely new state and they were using British legal instruments in order to do so.
1: Is Is it fair to say they were making it up as they went along, given that there was no precedent for any of this?
0: Yes, it was a really difficult situation they found themselves in. Uh, Britain had never dealt with anything like this before and uh, the other dominions which had been created before Ireland had happened under very different circumstances and you had that complication of the fact that there was all of these um, administrations already happening. As David has described, you had the underground doll government they had their own civil service even, they had their own courts. So you had all of these multiplicity of bodies you had you know, two or three governments you had two or three parliaments, you had two sets of courts and later on you had two sets of armies so the whole thing was incredibly complicated.
1: David um, in your um, first volume on De Valera you you described the attempt to get him re-elected as president uh, after the ratification of the treaty Um, it was defeated by just two votes now um, what would the result of it had had he been re-elected you don't use this word in the book but it hangs over those pages like a cloud could anarchy have been far behind?
2: Uh, I don't think so I think it would have been um, from the point of view of people trying to implement the treaty it would have been a disaster um, just just to recap a bit the treaty is passed on the 7th of January by 57 uh, uh, 64 to 57 so a majority of 7 two days later they reassemble in the dol Valera resigns but he immediately puts himself up for re-election and he says that if he is elected he's going to appoint a cabinet which is anti-treaty so all of his own people uh, opposed to the treaty uh, and he's defeated, as you say, by just two votes. What is the difference? He himself abstains, which could have been very costly. Two of the people who voted for the treaty abstain because they don't want to oppose uh, De Valera. And two people who voted for the treaty actually vote for De Valera, including Robert Barton, who only voted for the treaty in the Dáil because he and in Cabinet, for that matter, because he'd been a signatory sir, for, to it. So it's a really, really close vote. And it's, it's interesting that that, has, that vote hasn't uh, received as much attention uh, in the historiography as the vote. On the treaty because it could have completely unravelled the situation. Given how difficult it was for Collins and for Griffith to implement the treaty and to uh, get the kind of um, legitimacy that they were seeking for that settlement, had there been a dull government headed by President de Valera, packed with anti treatyites, I think it would have been almost impossible to do. I don't know whether any of what we're commemorating on Sunday could have gone ahead at all.
1: John Gibney, good morning.
3: Good morning, Shane.
1: Um, John, as the author of what's probably going to be the definitive work on the handover, um, could you, first of all, I'm going to give you the responsibility of the major spoiler alert, that um, the events as depicted in the film Michael Collins, uh, with the armies, bands, flags in the courtyard, never happened.
3: Yeah, there's, there's a problem when we talk about the handover of Dublin Castle, because you know, one you naturally assumes that the place was physically handed over and, you know, keys were presented and so on and so forth. We have an image of how these handovers of the premises take place and Neil Jordan's film, I suppose, encapsulates what a depiction of that might look like. But what happened on the 16th of January was a far more modest event that I suppose was more procedural than ceremonial. Um, I mean, the provisional government wouldn't take final possession of Dublin Castle until August 1922. So that does beg the question of what exactly was happening on the 16th. Um, I mean, David and Laura have filled in much of the kind of the, you know, legal and political background to the meeting. But a key thing, or a key aspect of the appointment of the provisional government, or a key condition, was that they had to signify to a representative of the British government, i.e., the viceroy, that they accepted the terms of the treaty, and only then could they formally take office and have authority, you know, granted over to them. So. This, I mean, in the days before the 16th of January, there was a great deal of uncertainty about what was actually going to happen. But the assumption was there'd be some kind of meeting in Dublin Castle, probably a low key event, which is essentially what happened on the 16th of January. Now, the catch is that the manner in which that was reported um, and spun, if you will, especially by the provisional government, emphasised the sense that, you know, the castle had been somehow surrendered or handed over. And, you know, you could look at Dublin Castle in two ways. There's there's a physical complex that's been there since the Middle Ages and which you're sitting in at the moment. But there's also, um, you might say, metaphorical Dublin Castle, because for a lot of nationalists and Republicans, Dublin Castle was shorthand for the government of Ireland, which wasn't necessarily a good thing as far as they were concerned. So the provisional government you know, assumed power and were installed in Dublin Castle on the 16th of January, and then they went back to the mansion house and ultimately made their home in City Hall rather than Dublin Castle. So you could say that, right, the physical complex wasn't handed over. Um, that was a far more protracted process that went on for months as the British withdrawal took place. Uh, British civil servants remained in place in the castle to act as liaisons with the provisional government, troops remained in there. I mean there were troops in the castle on Saint Patrick's Day still celebrating that event. So the actual physical withdrawal from the castle was a far more protracted event than we sometimes were sometimes led to believe. But what did happen is that you know Michael Collins and the provisional government that he now led assumed control of the governmental departments and the administration in Ireland and you know, while well, Neil Jordan's, the depiction of Neil Jordan's film, which I suppose is the thing that you know most people think of when they think of that event, um, it doesn't reflect in any way the reality of what would have happened in Dublin Castle on the day. I mean, events like that would have taken place as the British left military bases and barracks and installations around the country. They would have been more ceremonial events, you might say. But when we think of the handover of Dublin Castle, you kind of think, you kind of have to ask, well, which Dublin Castle? The, the real one or Dublin Castle as shorthand for actually governing Ireland, which was by far the more important of the two.
1: Grand. I want to talk about when Michael Collins came out of the uh, building across the way from us here. He looked like a man in a hurry. He looked like a man, if he'd gotten his way, he'd have knocked you down. He was in such a hurry to get back to the cabinet meeting in the mansion house. What was his in-tray like in terms of uh, authority? He had power but not authority. Who? who the British were reporting huge increases in brigandage, highway robbery, hijackings
2: yeah i mean it, it 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 was a bit lawless out there uh, and and for obvious reasons i mean the ric which uh, had for generations been keeping a lid on unrest uh, throughout ireland uh, had, had retreated, it was gone uh, in, in large part, or it was certainly confined to, to barracks. The IRA, the Republican police, uh, were supposed to be filling that gap, but didn't really have the have the manpower, or the time or the attention, because they, they, they had other things on their mind, principally. When, whether, weren't they whether, also whether, split? Yeah, exactly, and, and, and whether or not to accept the treaty and, and, and what to do about a treaty, which may, very many of, of, of their prominent leaders didn't like uh, one bit. So th- there is unrest in, in the countryside there, You've got to remember at this time, there there are a lot of guns floating around uh, the place and and that's obviously always a, a recipe for disaster. So there, there's that issue, there's the issue of, of trying to um, take over the, the reins of government and try and build up the legitimacy and that's why John alluded to the, uh, uh, the portrayal of, um, of, of what happened here a century ago uh, by the provisional government. They issued a statement saying that uh, they had accepted the surrender of Dublin Castle, which is, as John says isn't exactly um, in accordance with, with what actually happened. And that caused some annoyance uh, on the British. Um, Mark Sturgess uh, was assistant under Secretary here in Dublin Castle. His diaries are excellent. I know you're a fan of them, as, as, yeah. as I am. Uh, and he, he said the use of this word was caddish. He thought it was a little bit underhand to use this word because the British were giving power. They weren't surrendering anything, you know, which, which was their view of it. But it was important from the provisional government's point of view, from Collins' point of view, to show that the treaty was working, to show gains for the treaty. Look, we've accepted the treaty. It's not perfect, but look... We've taken over Dublin Castle. Robert Emmett wasn't able to do it in 1803. The 1916 rebels were stopped at the gate. Silk Silken Thomas wasn't able to do it. Michael Collins drives up in a taxi cab and gets handed the
1: keys. The treaty is working. That's the, what they want to portray. Laura, um, uh, in terms of the um, when when they left here after the after the, the handover, uh, they may have been three men, three taxis, eight men in three taxis, but there were two facts that had happened. One, the British were now going to withdraw, and two, that they were the provisional government.
0: Yes, so it it was actually quite a complicated thing that had to happen in order to form the provisional government, because uh, in accordance with the treaty, they had to have a meeting of the Parliament for Southern Ireland, which was a body which was envisaged under the 1920 Government of Ireland Act. Now that was absolutely anathema to the Irish; they they didn't want to go setting up anything to do with that 1920 Act. But they had no choice because this was made something uh, that was put into the treaty, and they had to do it. There was actually discussions in the in the British. cabinet as to whether or not they would use the doll as the vehicle for ratifying um, the treaty but they decided that, um, or the legal advice they received was that no you had to have this particular body. So the Parliament of Southern Ireland actually convened just for a couple of hours on the same day the castle was handed over specifically to ratify the treaty first of all and then to create this body which is called the provisional government. So that was created that day but it, again, it, legally, it was a really complex situation because, in theory, that body had not yet been given any authority. It wasn't considered a government under that 1920 Act. It was getting its, its force of authority from the treaty, but it hadn't been given any legal powers to act. And that didn't actually happen until the 31st of March, when the Irish Free State Agreement Act was passed by Westminster, which allowed for orders in council to be passed the next day on the 1st of April. And that is when you had actual transfer of powers from the British. British administration to the Irish. Now we know the Irish provisional government did act before that date um, but legally it only acquired power to do so after that date and even after that point it didn't have full authority to act because not everything was transferred so it was decided not to transfer sensitive things like the police for example and the military, customs and excise, there would have been difficulty collecting tax at the time. Quite a lot was left over to be transferred uh, both in September and then in December 1922.
1: Winston Churchill was um, one of the British uh, um, cabinet members who was very exercised about the lack of legal status for the government. He, He talked of it being unsanctified by law.
0: Yeah, so the Irish Free State, the new state that they were creating, didn't come into existence until 1922, uh, December 1922. So you really had this constitutional vacuum in the meantime. Now, initially, the British thought that this could all happen quite quickly, and Winston Churchill himself in late December, he's trying to push the New Year's Day as the, the handover of power. But the British thought that the Irish would go along with the same sort of procedure that had happened in the Dominions, whereby the British would essentially draft a constitution for the Dominions. And you see this notes in the in the British archives where they're essentially giving out about the stubbornness of the Irish in insisting on drafting their own constitution. And you know, Lionel Curtis says, well, if they weren't being so stubborn about it, we could have a constitution draft and passed in Westminster by February, we could have elections, and there'd be no need for all this complexity but the Irish were really insistent that they create their own constitution and this was really important the Irish felt in order for the state to have legitimacy amongst the eyes of the Irish public, it would have to be seen as an Irish creation. So this was really important for them, and that's really what pushed out the timetable and added to the complexities.
2: And you can see, I mean, there's, there's obviously legal aspects to this. Like, if a government does something, it has to have the legal authority to do it. But there's also, I mean, this is really interesting from the political point of view. What, what, what Laura is saying, because of a new state that is the creation of the British, it lacks legitimacy in the eyes of, of many Irish nationalists. Of Wasn't that one, one of the, the, the
1: yeah. yeah, when Air was saying it, it would be. A- Creature of the British. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's
2: really important uh, for the Provisional Government uh, and for the Dahl Government, uh, headed by, by Griffith, to convince people, to show people that this is our own constitution that we are giving to ourselves. It is not dependent on the British. And even in the constitution, as it's finally enacted, it does refer to sovereign power deriving from the people, not from. King George, uh, across in in Buckingham Palace, it comes from the Irish people. The other aspect of it is that Collins was trying to deliver a constitution that would be Republican in tone, that would be enough to um, paper over the cracks with the anti-treaty to prove to them that this was a Republican uh, constitution, and that potentially could have uh, averted the threat of civil war unfortunately the british had their own political uh, needs which was they, they and, and this was was what had been at the center of, of the treaty negotiations they needed to show that there was still a link with the crown that there was still a link with uh, the british empire in order to demonstrate to the other dominions that the british were still in charge so you have those two conflicting um, needs, political imperatives uh, in the negotiations uh, and, and the review of the constitution that the British carried out and unfortunately uh, from the point of view of Collins and his colleagues the British won.
0: There was a really interesting device which was originally in the Irish Free State Constitution which might have actually offset a lot of the difficulties though and it's something called the creation of external ministers and it was this idea that James Douglas who was a member of the Constitution Committee had come up with and his original idea, it was based on what was happening in Switzerland at the time was that you had outside experts who would run various government departments they wouldn't be members of the Oireachtas but they would be outside experts elected in order to run these particular areas so for example you might have a farmer in charge of the the Department of Agriculture but what Collins saw in this plan this idea the fact that they would be outsiders they weren't going to be members of the Oireachtas and Collins discovered well hang on a second they won't have to swear any oath uh, if they're not members of the Oireachtas so he was negotiating the Collins de Valera pact at the same time that these provisions were being drafted and he thought he had come up with the key of solving this whole thing that de Valera and the others could be in the cabinet as external ministers they wouldn't have to take the oath they wouldn't have to sacrifice their own principles maybe it would all work out of course when the draft was taken over to London in May 1922 the British were absolutely furious with it they insisted that every single minister would have to take an oath uh, and so it sort of ruined uh, Collins's plans of potentially having this pact
1: uh, John, um, I'm just looking. I'm, I didn't bring you on to embarrass you, but your book is an absolute cracker. Um, yeah, your book with Kate oh, O'Malley, The Handover, and uh, you go into a great deal of detail about uh, the last minutes of the British administration. Do you want to talk us through how that very short uh, sequence of events unfolded here in the castle
3: on the sixteenth of January? Yeah. Well. It- I mean, I suppose it's the, the precise arrangements for what was to take place in Dublin Castle weren't fully clarified until Monday morning. Um, I mean, the tre- uh, under the terms of the treaty, the treaty, the, well basically the British never recognised it all, so under the terms of the treaty, the treaty had to be approved or ratified by a meeting of members elected to the Parliament of Southern Ireland, um, which effectively meant pro-treaty TDs and a few DMPs for Trinity College, and that, meeting had met in the mansion house on the 14th of january that had approved the treaty um in a way that the british would recognize and also nominate the provisional government now there were suggestions that that afternoon collins could go and meet the viceroy in an informal manner but apparently he was too busy and it was pushed back until the following monday so it was very it was a very ad hoc arrangement even on on sunday the 15th civil servants were being quoted the press as saying they weren't quite sure what was going to happen but it would probably be a very informal event, which is what actually actually took place and the provisional government met for the first time in um, in the Mansion House on the morning of the 11th on the morning of the 16th of uh, of November of of January now the press had been briefed about this if you look at the dublin dailies for uh, for the 16th of january they're full of you know banner heads you know you know headlines talking about the the handing over or surrender of dublin castle that the castle was going to fall and so on and so forth so obviously somebody had teed them up about the fact that something was going to happen on the monday but it wasn't until late in the morning that the the precise nature of that something was confirmed and the arrangement was that the provisional government would go from the mansion house to dublin castle at a, at 1. 40 pm where they would meet the viceroy and the heads of the other irish governmental departments at the time so they turned up in three taxis um, and i mean there had been crowds outside the outside the the palace gate of the castle that leads into the lower yard they had been gathering from an early hour There was a good deal of hustle and bustle. I mean, journalists were present Your Many of your predecessors, I suppose you could say, were present in the castle on that day. Uh, Newsreel, cameramen, demobilised auxiliaries. I mean, Dublin Castle had housed, you know, a number of units of the auxiliary division. and Some of them had been demobilised that morning and were apparently quite, you know, quite pleased about about the fact. And at approximately 1.30pm, the taxis came into the castle, drove up through the lower yard, and into the upper Castle Yard, which you're overlooking at the moment. And they would have parked it the Chief Secretary's office. And the, the meeting, which, which was in the, 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 one of the one of the eastern corners of the yard. Now, the the the, the, bit, the, the room in which the, the meeting took place was the Privy Council chamber. The Privy Council would have which been is exactly the advisory council, sitting, if you will, then. to the Viceroy. OK, well, if you're looking straight out the window then, you can see where it is, it's directly above the arch, you know, and yep. it's very, it was a very well illuminated room. I mean, people who were gathered in, in the courtyards on either side of it could see what was happening when the meeting took place. So Collins and his colleagues arrived, they went in, and um, there's various accounts of, you know, somewhat sarky exchanges that took place uh, between the senior civil servants and Collins. Um, they went upstairs, met the viceroy, and met these civil servants, and for many of them, you know some of them did leave accounts of the meeting and they, they commented on you know a certain sense of resignation and awkwardness and even distaste distaste on their part because as far as they were concerned they were handing over power to people who in their minds were were killers they were representatives of the IRA and Sinn Fein um, wasn't there some, wasn't there, there a reference a to um, servant
1: does a civil serv- can a civil servant shake the hand that is stained with crime and outrage
3: exactly Exactly, and that kind of—that's—that's by you know William Robinson of the local government board, and I suppose that does encapsulates. Some of the sentiments that were there. Now, in the meeting itself, Collins apparently went around shaking people's hands, putting people at ease. Robinson also noted that. And, you know, the activity, papers being exchanged, hands being shaken, that was noted by journalists outside outside the venue. So, ironically, you know, lots of people saw what was happening at the time, but the meeting itself took less than an hour. Um, They confirmed that they accepted the treaty, though the paperwork seems to have gone missing if it ever existed at all. and basically, they were told by the Viceroy, you're now the provisional government that they were installed. And I should say, though, this did not take place with ceremony. I mean, the Viceroy, Lord Allen, he turned up in civilian clothes rather than, say, the, the ceremonial dress that Alan Stanford wears in the movie. Um, from a British point of view, this is quite a low-key event because it's it's worth dwelling on, I suppose... The British view of these events. I mean, there was no, as you said earlier on, there was no precedent for these kind of handovers of power necessarily in the British Empire. They, they would come later, which is something we go into in the book, but they hadn't come in 1922. And the British seemed to want to get the ball rolling in terms of establishing a provisional government, transferring power, withdrawing their troops. They were aware of the kind of divisions that the treaty had engendered, and they seemed to be quite um, insistent that moves to withdraw from southern ireland as it was as you would call the 26 counties at that time and establish a free state that that should begin the process should begin as soon as was possible so quite literally as soon as provisional government were installed you no, know, the day after troops began to withdraw, preparations have been made, and they began to pull out of their bases around various parts of the island, or various parts of the 26 counties that eventually became the Free State.
1: I think um, if they'd opened the windows of the of the house that uh, during the cabinet meeting, and um, that uh, when they returned from the castle, they'd have heard the rumble of military trucks heading towards the north wall. The, the British were very anxious to fulfil their side of the bargain in terms of withdrawing.
3: They were. They were, and and there's a point point that's worth dwelling on, which is that the British felt that, if you look at the cabinet minutes um, of the provisional government, like in, in the morning they said they were going to Dublin Castle to take over the you know, the head of the departments of state. When they came back in the afternoon, they wrote a statement saying they'd accepted the surrender of Dublin Castle. So you can see how something had evolved in the meantime. And you do get the sense that they weren't shy of trying to make a bit of good publicity out of this from their point of view, to, I suppose emphasise the fact that they had taken power, they had seized power, they had taken the enemy citadel. That was the image that was projected into papers. And the British certainly looked askance at some of the commentary on um, the events at Dublin Castle. But they seem to have missed a trick in one sense that... They didn't. The British didn't place a great value on uh, the events of the 16th of January from a publicity point of view. As far as they were concerned, that was a, a legal procedure that had to be gone through. What they did place a great deal of emphasis on was the political impact of withdrawing their forces from around the island of Ireland. That, as far as they were concerned, that was going to be a far more meaningful statement of intent and a statement to Irish people that the treaty was a reality because the British garrison was leaving. At a garrison that had, had a footprint across you know, every, in every Irish county and had done so for centuries. And when those military withdrawals happened from barracks, very often, and there was a, you know, a good deal of tension around them, it must be said, but very often these would take place with regimental ceremonials. Forces would, you know, British forces would march out, often led by a band. They would march out in formation. And very often, as time went by, were replaced by troops of the emerging National Army when that came into existence. So it's weird. The British, the British didn't seem to place too much stock in the events of Dublin Castle on the 16th, of January 1922, their attention, um, and I suppose their political focus necessarily, insofar as they were trying to make political capital out of their withdrawal, was the far more visible withdrawal of a very large garrison that had been a fact of Irish life for centuries. When the British soldiers left, that was going to be the statement that they themselves were leaving. And even better, if the British soldiers left and were replaced by the soldiers of a new Irish government, then that was another powerful statement of the fact that the treaty was now a reality. And that British rule was ending in the counties that became the free state.
2: Just going back to um, the events of the 16th of January, it's interesting that the Irish view of what was happening and the British view of what was happening were completely different. And this is an indication of, of constructive ambiguity at work. From the Irish point of view, Collins was here to accept the keys to the castle. From the British point of view, the Lord Lieutenant, acting on behalf of His Majesty, was appointing the ministers of uh, formally appointing the ministers of uh, the Free State of, of the Provisional Government. So there, there, there's two different interpretations of what happened here, and the Irish by getting uh, Provisional Government by getting their statement out about accepting the surrender of the castle
1: kind of won the race in terms of getting the public perception of that. Laura, wasn't there, a, um, as we were talking about earlier, a creative ambiguity about um, the um, the exact nature of the the government that was emerging?
0: Exactly, and, and as David is saying, it, it was clever propaganda on the on the part of the Irish to say that it was a surrender because it was some, this was something the British had always envisaged doing. And actually, the British were quite happy to be rid of the responsibility. And you can see, um, you know, Winston Churchill making debate m- making speeches in Westminster in February 1922, saying, "We need to complete this transfer. We need to get rid of this responsibility. We don't want to be having to answer questions about what's happening in Ireland here. We don't want to be responsible for this anymore." So they were more than happy to hand over this, uh, this authority. Um, but funnily enough, it, it did take a number of stages, and, and we, we spoke about that earlier. So, um, but what,
1: what, what it was... Hammer Greenwood, I think, was said, said that we, we really have to um, uh, carry out to the letter of, of, of the agreement what we undertook to reinforce the authority of this new government.
0: Yes, yeah, so they didn't want any challenges coming to the legitimacy of, of this government afterwards. And obviously they could see what was happening at the time with the IRA, the anti-treaty side, and they could envisage that there would be difficulties down the line. So they needed to ensure from a British perspective and from a legal perspective at least, that you know everything was tight, they were doing things by the book, they were going to... You know, the Irish Free State Agreement Act on the 31st of March made it clear that force of law was now being given to the treaty orders could be made than which they were on the next day. On um, the 1st of April, uh, King George passed these orders in council to transfer authority to the provisional government. And then you had the election then in May, which essentially gave a, a really important, another type of authority to the provisional government in the fact that they now had a mandate from the Irish people, and a really strong mandate actually, um, to go ahead and, and to complete their plans.
1: David, in the immediate hours after the, um, the handover here, the um straight away there was this sort of smokescreen uh, of um kind of a a um an agreement that the lord uh, the lord lieutenant would be advised by this new government, that yeah. this was a kind of a, a smokescreen yeah. to buy time.
2: Yeah, well, as Laura says, because there was no legal authority for the British government to hand over power to a provisional government, despite the treaty having been passed uh, by, by at, at Westminster, there's this kind of um, uh, farcical situation where the Lord Lieutenant in... British legal terms is still the power in the land and is acting on the advice of the provisional government. Now, the provisional government would have presented it differently, would have said they were now in charge and were given the orders. But from a British legal perspective, this is this is what was going on. And um, that, that was really to save the blushes, I think, of, of the British because they hadn't managed to get the, le- the necessary legislation through Westminster. So this matters... Uh, from a legal point of view it matters from uh, the point of view of the theology of republicanism uh, uh, as to what's going on here is this a native government is this a creature as, as, as you said earlier is this a creature uh, of, of Westminster so it matters from those points of view from the practical practicalities of actually running the country and taking over power it doesn't matter one bit
1: John um, one of the uh, the, the intriguing Aspects of your account of the last minutes of the uh, the administration here is the um, like uh, David was alluding to how offended some of the British uh, administration were by the use of the word surrender. Uh, but if you look at the accounts that you have in the book of what the senior civil servants were saying, they were talking about um, abdication, surrender, and sauve qui peut, essentially every man for himself. It was almost like a kind of almost like the end of the tsarist regime in Russia, according to the kind of language that the civil servants were using.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of them, George George Hester Duggan, referred to, you know, compared it to, you know, the, the, a play coming to an end, or the, the players, the players changing, and there was uncertainty as to what would happen, as to what would happen next. And I suppose if you put yourself, if you kind of put yourself in the position of not just those civil servants, but I suppose anyone on the island of ireland in early 1922 in this situation of transition and the flux where the future would have been deeply uncertain i mean of course you know everyone had their plans for the future we all have them but whether they come to fruition or are derailed by events is another matter entirely and certainly for those civil servants it's it's, it's ironic because in many ways uh, they just they just continued doing what they had done before <laughs> even after the 16th of january but the point was that the the regime under under whose auspices they did it was changing irrevocably and profoundly for them. I mean, I suppose you know some of these would have been of strongly unionist convictions. If if that was your political position, then this was a very very this was, would have been quite a wrench, I suppose. Um, and you you know from, were, from your research, the, 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 John, the bosses were changing. From your research,
1: um, what was the mood in the room like? You um, you were describing the uncertainty. Uh, some of them, some of those civil service departments would have been um, um, superseded by the underground department, some of them would have been merged, so there, there was, as you say, uh, a real sense of um, uh, trepid, trepidation and uncertainty as to what on earth they would be once this, thing, this pr- procedure had, had gone through.
3: I suppose that, that well that would have had to have gone through their minds because as as Laura pointed pointed out earlier on, like the you know, the Dahl had established to some degree what, what historians often call a counter state. And it was certainly um I mean, it was certainly the case that the hope from the provisional government was that the institution the Dahl had created could somehow assimilate the existing departments that had existed under the Dublin Castle regime regime. Now the pressure of events meant that the reverse happened and the structure of much of the civil service and administration remained Broadly speaking, intact, but that only became clear later on, and especially ju- against the pressure of civil war. But, you know, for someone who, for someone in that room, and I mean, the only the the only two accounts of what happened in that room are really from the British side, uh, that, those of William Robinson and George Chester Duggan. You know, um, you know, the accounts of that meeting on the sixteenth, there it does capture a sense that well something was changing, something was coming to an end, and they weren't quite sure what was actually going to begin. And as I said, that's that's a sense that many many people would have had across the island. And there's also, I suppose, the the symbolic impact, though, to onlookers of what of what they were looking at on the sixteenth of January. Because we can look we can look back and you know parse it and understand, suggest that well, it was, it was obviously more complicated than looked at the time. I mean, it it was, and there were other nuances and subtleties to go to to, to factor in. But if you were standing in Dublin Castle, or if you were in Dublin on the 16th of January, if you'd read one of those newspapers, or if you'd bumped into an acquaintance who had, you know, been passing down Dame Street at half past one in the afternoon, you know, the visceral impact of what happened might have a much, much simpler emotional connotation in that all of a sudden, here was an Irish government that was installed. I mean, it's kind of encapsulated by uh, Bat O'Connor, a colleague of Michael Collins, who was in the, the castle yard and who wrote to his sister, a couple of weeks later saying that he what he'd seen was one of the greatest days in Irish history you know that the castle had the castle had fallen as far as he was concerned and you know you can I suppose you can't dismiss that emotional impact that the event would have had on people at the time because you know even if there was an element of fiction even if there was a smoke screen around um, around the true nature of the events the symbolism of them that here was an Irish government of whatever jurisdiction and whatever you know composition but an Irish government nonetheless hmm. taking power from the British government that had ruled Ireland for centuries if you boil that down even to its most simple you know simple symbolism that would have had a pretty significant impact on people now that's assuming that sorry John just I want to bring David in in here Um, yeah you know Collins the demeanour
1: of Collins as he came out in that iconic photograph through the door across from us here he he was in such a hurry that he looked as if he'd knock you down if you got in his way and he was things to do well he said that he was pushing he was the eyewitness said he was pushing ministers into the taxis to get them back to Mansion House. But some of Collins' own language in the hours afterwards. Speak of a different um, Collins, um, one who was aware of the enormity of what had happened. Yeah,
2: he wrote to uh, Kitty Kiernan, um, his, uh, his fiance, uh, talking about you know, the pride he felt. Just as John says, you know, even if this was only a symbol, It it was a pretty important one, Uh, it was a crucial one, and it's interesting, John and and Kate O'Malley in 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 their book uh, pointed out, and it was something that never really occurred to me, during the course of the treaty negotiations, um, the British talked about, we will transfer Dublin Castle to you. Didn't talk about anything else. They didn't talk about departments. They didn't talk about you know offices around the country. They talked about Dublin Castle. It was the symbol uh, to the nation, to everybody in in, in this country of, of British rule in Ireland. And even if they physically didn't take over the, the the these actual buildings for some time, even though the I don't think the the, the last of, of, of the British left until August sometime. In theory, in symbol, they had taken over power. They had taken the keys to the castle. They had accepted the surrender in, in their own terms. This was absolutely huge. And nobody was in any doubt about how huge it was. The Irish Independence described as one of the most momentous events in Irish history for the last several centuries. You know, they're, actually, putting it, they're putting it on a par or ahead of the rising of, of, of the
1: signing of he, the treaty. It's huge. He actually referred to... Uh, it. The, I, we took the dread Bastille... Mm. He's using the kind of... Yeah, and, and remember, language. you
2: know, the, 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 it's, it's the centre of administration. It's also where quite a few members of the Dáil uh, would have been taken for questioning. It's where uh, many members of, of the IRA, or many Republicans and innocent civilians, were tortured well, by the auxiliaries. It's where the, three
1: people were murdered on the night of Bloody Sunday. We can see that. We can actually see the guard room where, where yeah. the murders took place. Um, John... Um, one of the uh, the fascinating aspects as you say in the, in the book uh, was the um the la- the, ha- the life of the castle afterwards and uh, one of the things i am fascinated by in the book you have an illustration i'm just looking at it here of the dublin reconstruction and it's kind of like a an idea of the the, the city of dublin a, a kind of a one that never never actually happened but do you want to talk us through what they uh, what the plan, the panoramic sketch took in, starting with the Royal Hospital becoming the Doyle and the government offices?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the castle would have featured in political discourse pro and anti-treaty um, in the months leading up to the civil war and beyond. I mean, even before getting to the, the map, there's a, there's a picture or a, an illustration in the book by Grace Gifford that depicts Collins obsequiously bowing beso- before the British v- Viceroy as he takes over power in the castle. So, from a Rep- Republican point of view, an anti-Treaty point of view, the symbolism could look rather different. But the castle was never used for a kind of an executive function thereafter, because in, in the nineteen twenties, it became the home of the law courts while the four courts were being rebuilt after the Civil War. And there was a very an organisation that went by the name of the Greater Dublin Reconstruction Movement who published a plan in uh, late nineteen twenty two, as I recall, and the plan. Also, we brought in a couple of maps that were um, that are indicated, in the, that one of which is the one you've referred to in, yeah. the, in the book. Now, there were various plans in the early part of the 20th century for, you know, the wholesale reconstruction of Dublin, the removal of its slums, the uphauling of its infrastructure and so forth, you know. Now, these tended to found on the rock of cost because none of this was going to be cheap. But... In the aftermath of the the revolutionary period there was a sense that this these kind of ideas might have greater traction because quite a lot had been demolished and therefore there was scope there was more scope for reconstruction than might normally have been the case i mean much of o'connell street was still in rubble after the civil war so the idea for the greater dublin reconstruction movement was that dublin castle would become a stop on a kind of a, a kind of ceremonial highway that would run through dublin and that would culminate in a new parliamentary building or a new p- home for the future irish parliament out in what's now the, in the Royal Hospital, Kilmainham. And the castle would become, I mean, it was, you know, the de facto courts of justice at that time, but that would become a permanent feature, that it would actually be, it would take the role of the four courts, effectively. Um, it's an and interesting this, idea. The, the GPO know, would be the City <laughs> Hall,
1: the, um, the, the yeah. Custom House would be yeah. the new GPO, all the way through to a new complex of um, uh, railway station and docks at the very end of the of the river.
3: Oh yeah, and you'd have a new, new a huge new cathedral was penciled in. Um, I mean, it's pretty grandiose. It came to nothing, but it's an it's an interesting idea. Um, and I think a point worth making is that you know, the, the kind of resonance Dublin Castle had as a centre of government ended in nineteen twenty two as well. Um, in the I mean, in the 1930s, it began to be used for ceremonial events. Um, and one thing we highlight is an event in which the. The Eucharistic Congress of 1932, there was an event there that took place in Dublin Castle at the behest of the Valeris government. But the Governor-General, who was ironically James McNeill, um, the brother of Owen McNeill, who had been a member of the provisional government a decade previously, the Governor-General wasn't invited, which you, we, you you could take as a sign of things to come. That that ceremonial role the castle had was never going to be resumed. I mean, when we think of Irish government now, we, we you know, and as journalists, you know, the fact that Leinster House is used so much as a cinnamon for an independent Irish government in the way that Dublin Castle was used as a cinnamon for the British government in Ireland a century ago but the castle kind of it, fa- it. I mean it, its its role in Irish public life is so different these days I mean it's very obviously it, it plays a huge role the presidential inaugurations take place there and think of all the official functions that take place there but it's a far more I mean the last the last time I was in Dublin Castle was for a fair with my you know, Christmas fair with my kids just before Christmas you know so it's, it's a far more benign building Uh, to us in the 24th century than it would have been to Republicans a century ago, which I suppose makes the fact that they got control of what it represented a century ago, as David said, that bit more powerful as a symbol. But it doesn't play the role it played then. But that's not to discount the the importance of the role it actually played back then.
1: Um, We're coming to the end of our discussion here, and uh, I think it's it's important um, because the storm clouds were gathering already um, over the uh, relationship of the IRA with the Doyle. David, do you want to just give us a uh, a quick summary of what how it was deteriorating, the relationship between the IRA and the government.
2: OK, well, GHQ, which was dominated by uh, by Collins, had, had gone by a majority in favour of the treaty, but that wasn't the same in, in units around the country, particularly in the South, First Southern Division, Second Southern Division, which had borne the brunt of the fighting, not happy about the treaty, wanted to reject it. Even before the, tra- the vote in the Dáil, uh, some of those elements had said that they would not accept the treaty. And elements within the IRA are looking for an army convention, uh, a meeting of, of delegates from all the different units, and initially Richard Mulcahy, the Minister for Defence in the Dole government, had agreed and, and the Dole government had agreed that that would go ahead. Uh, but they thought better of that a couple of months later. In March, the provisional government took a decision that the convention should be banned. And it's very interesting We you look at the minutes uh, of that meeting. They said it was decided that the proposed volunteer convention would not be permitted on the grounds that while the doll continues to exist, it is the sole body in supreme control of the army and that any effort to set up another body in control would be tantamount to an attempt to establish a military dictatorship. So they banned it, but of course the convention went ahead, and the convention said said that the IRA would no longer be subject to the Dáil, it would be subject to its own executive. So this is a very ominous side on the road towards
1: civil war. Laura, how fundamental a, uh, a breach would that have been? Had uh, the IRA, uh, how, how, um, how would things have resolved had the, um, the IRA created what Rory O'Connor accepted would have been the uh, military dictatorship?
0: It would have been very difficult to to achieve what was eventually achieved Uh, I mean if you think about it in terms of um, the the philosophy surrounding the whole thing as well I mean it's really complex because there there was always this belief about the doll as the sovereign authority and representing the sovereign Irish people and all of a sudden you have the IRA saying well no we don't agree with this because they've taken a decision we don't agree with We're we are now representing the sovereign Irish people because we think we represent what they really feel and there was this whole difficulty there but the British actually did have a backup plan and that situation and whether it all would have would have worked out or not is really difficult to say but they were hoping that in the event of a complete breakdown that they would actually organise a plebiscite on the treaty so they'd actually bring it back to the Irish people. Really interestingly from a British perspective where they had a complete belief in parliamentary sovereignty they were going to bring it back to the Irish people themselves and as we saw when that eventually did happen in, in May of 1922 when you had the general election which was essentially an election of on that issue of the treaty, um, there, there was quite a, a big majority in favour of the treaty amongst ordinary Irish people.
1: Okay, we're coming up to the end of our discussion here at Dublin Castle. Uh, it just remains for me to thank my guests Laura Cahalan, John Gibney and Dave McCullough, my colleagues Garrett Duffy and Damien Damon Gavigan on sound and vision, and all the staff here at Dublin Castle.